How you doing today, Brian and John? Doing well, Nick, and glad to have John along rounding out the team as uh, he helped take the lion's share of the topic that we covered today, which was... It's October, which means it's performance review season. So we talked about how leadership affects employee performance. I think we had a great conversation. And as is typical for any of our episodes, it's chock full of little leadership tactic tidbits along the way. So with that, let's get it rolling. All right, roll the music, John. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. I'm Brian Comerford in Denver, Colorado. I'm Nick Lozano, Washington, D.C. And I'm John Abbott in Alexandria, Virginia. All right. I guess I should preface that I'm in the same city as John. I actually, I'm actually like two miles from him. But we've been rolling this gambit, this bit, for three years. So I guess I'm in Alexandria, too. It's true. In fairness, I'm sitting in Aurora. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is real anymore. <laughs> I'm not that that is facts, John. That is just straight facts. Welcome. We're here with John Abbott once again joining us as our uh, new third spoke. Welcome, John. Thanks again for for being part of the team and rolling with us on this. Sure. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. For our pre-recorded conversation, I'll get myself a better microphones so people can hear me better, and I don't sound like I'm. Talking through a potato, I think is how Nick described it. I did say a potato, but it's that's the magic of post-production audio. We can put some compression on it. We can EQ it a little bit, and it'll sound a bit better than what it does now. But a good mic always helps. Smarter and better looking as well, or just that's just a filter. Like when we post to Instagram, it's just a filter, and and instantly you have hair, John. The hair just comes just (laughs) sprouting out of the top of the head. (laughs) That's right, but the filter is not going to help you with the snazzy janitor media code name we've got the ronin janitor and the custodial artist and then we've got john (laughs) (laughs) no you got to get one of the military terms right isn't it like a latrine orderly or something like that (laughs) but i guess as we're we're catching up here we're glancing at topics before we hit the record button and one of the things that crossed our uh or I guess our screen or whatever you want to say is how leadership affects employee performance. And I think that's a good topic Uh, seeing that it's October of 2021. It's the end of the year. A lot of organizations, they run on their fiscal year runs on a calendar year. So it's that time of year to do employee reviews. So since John pointed this one out when we're going through it, I want to hit him with this question first. In, In your opinion, how does leadership affects employee performance. I hope it has positive impact if you have good leadership. I think there's probably a few ways to slice this problem. One is how does your leadership as a team lead affect the overall performance of your team and then the individual performance of the members on that team. And then there is how does the leadership of an individual on your team affect their performance rating or, or their performance in general throughout the year. One thing I try to do with my team, and I've only been leading this team since February, I was, I didn't even have the full performance cycle with them, which was an interesting challenge to mid-year reviews and then a final review of the year. But the one thing I try to do is, is teach leadership lessons and provide articles and talk about leadership and to raise the overall bar for my team. And I've found that the employees, not just that where I'm working now, but everywhere I work, the employees that engage with leadership topics and, and earnestly strive to be better leaders and to grow or end up performing better. So that's probably one little bucket we can put that so in. The, the other thing I'll, 
I'll talk about. I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts on as well as how does my performance impact the team? That's a difficult thing to measure. Did, am I actually making this team better? You have to do some self-reflection. Of course, I get a performance review from, from my leadership, which I'm happy to say they, they feel I did a decent job this year. Another guy set any world records and knocked anything out of the park, but I, I think I put our team on a good trajectory and, and I'm looking forward to what we can accomplish in the next year, which is similar probably to what I said to my boss in the middle of my performance review. But <laughs> I, I think that's the open question. How is my performance changing and impacting my team over time? I'm staring down the barrel at my first full fiscal year with this group of individuals. Some of whom used to be my peers until I took this leadership position. One thing I'm looking forward to is how our cert, we do agency surveys that break down the data into our small teams. And I'm interested how my leadership might impact that team next year. So I don't know, we, we accomplished a lot. I have an excellent team. I was really proud of all the work we put together. And I think all their ratings reflected that, but I, I don't know how much of that credit I can give to myself and they're doing the work. But as we've talked about in the past, I think it's one of, one of the key jobs of a good leader is giving their people the freedom to, to do what they do best. So it's, it's not my actions that make my team perform well, it, it's my ability to get out of the way sometimes or, or to get things out of their way so that they can actually do the work. Yeah. That's my initial, I guess, dissertation on performance. <laughs> Mitch said your guys thoughts, how it works, maybe your organizations or in your experience. Yeah. I think for me, the, the first answer is leadership sets direction. And from an employee performance perspective, sometimes what that means is shaping a path, not necessarily dictating direction, but shaping a path so that you really have the opportunity for the employee to make their own decisions along the way. And, uh, as long as they're directionally oriented in the direction that you hope things are moving, then you can often be surprised by some of the creativity that comes out of the choices that they will make. That to me is one of those great opportunities and helping to coach and lead others and that you really give them the chance to make their own decisions, to set themselves up for their own successes or failures, each of which bring their own degrees of value. But at the end of the day, to me, uh, the most effective leadership is always the one that has set clear direction, uh, and clear objectives around a mission. How you, just to follow up, Brian, how do you gauge whether, how much freedom an individual employee has to make decisions. So for me, I have, you know, a, a range of relatively junior to senior employees underneath me. Some of them, you pretty much write your performance plan for next year. And I sign off on it. Others probably need a little bit more direction, but again, I work in government where those GS levels are pretty well defined and your job description is very specific. You probably have a little more private sector experience than I do where, or maybe it's a little less clearly articulated. How do you assess that in your employees and maybe set them free or Nick, sorry. Oh, good question for the current. <laughs> yeah, I can take a first step at it, John. Yeah, so you take that first step. <laughs> for me, I, here's a good example. I had a procurement manager who reported to me and she had been, you know, promoted up a role that didn't have any management responsibilities whatsoever. And so I knew that there would be a few cycles. Uh, of her getting her arms around what was really required to be the one who is the key decision maker in that role versus constantly going and asking for feedback. What should I do? What's next? What are the next steps? And so part of it is just laying out a little bit of a framework to start from and then let the employee take a stab at fleshing that out. And so 
just walking through a scenario of here are all of the various steps that are required in these types of processes and identifying some of those different things and then just asking some questions. So with this particular step, what are some of the things that you think might need to happen and what's the, the sequence of events that they need to happen in and how are we doing that today? And what are some of the things that might help make some of those steps more efficient? And so probing and soliciting feedback, and sometimes you're not going to get the answer right away. Sometimes you've got to let them go out and do their first rough draft and come back and go through a few cycles of the experience themselves before they say, this really needs to be retooled. I was thinking about this, the way that we receive information currently, it's a very manual process, but actually if we send it into a shared email box and it can generate notifications for three different people, then anyone who's available can grab it and would actually speed that process along, things of that nature. So that you allow someone else the latitude to, you know, bake in their own creative thinking and elevate their own perspective from just being a contributor to being someone who can lead the charge and whatever the responsibilities are for their role themselves. Nick, what do you think about that? I agree with everything you said, and we're, we're talking about kind of end of the year and performance reviews. And I think sometimes people who are leading people forget that they've got to lead them the rest of the year, right? The time to check in with them to see, make sure that you're giving them everything they need and that things are going in the right direction they need to go should be happening on a frequent basis, just not at the fourth quarter, whenever your fourth quarter is for performance reviews and going, Brian, we were supposed to get this done in Q3. I told you at Q4 last year, but you never got it done. Why did that not happen? So I think a lot of it stems just from communication, just in general, whether it's private sector, public sector, like nonprofit, whatever it is, like there should just be communication happening more than just that one quarter a year. It doesn't matter how many employees you have. You could have a thousand people underneath you. A good example is we had Major General Brent Williams, who was in charge of what a whole hospital in like Japan or something like that. And somehow everyone beneath him knew exactly what their jobs were and how what they did made an impact to the organization because he was effectively communicating with the people below him who then were effectively communicating with the people that were below them. So the change just went down. So I would say communication is a big deal, you know, making sure that it, your leadership can impact performance of employees. Yeah. A couple of points on that. I, I would say that again, when I say to me, leadership, the chief responsibility of leadership is setting direction and having a clear understanding of the mission and the objectives. What you just described there to me, Nick is a perfect example of that. Right. If you've got multiple tiers and everyone is working in harmony because they understand how they fit into the overall picture and what their contributions and responsibilities are, that's when you've got really effective leadership at the top. The direction has been set. The communication flows down through all levels. And that's what really creates that, that harmony of everyone working together. The, mm -hmm. the second point that I was going to touch on, and nothing should be a surprise at the time you get to a performance review, all of those yeah, things should have been aired out pretty openly and repeatedly <laughs> along the way. If you've got someone who's a per, per, poor performer or someone who's an exceptional performer, again, neither, nothing that you can say in either of those situations should be a surprise to, to either of those personality types. That's funny saying that I'm looking at my notebook here. One of the bullets I wrote down while Nick was talking is no one should ever be surprised by their rating. So 
<laughs> but I agree. I think that, that communication throughout the year, I actually have told all my employees is I really don't like the way the government does performance reviews. It's you do a mid-year, which doesn't really, it goes into your record. But it's not an actual rating. It's not tied to anything other than part of the narrative for your year. And then it's a twice a year you're expected to sit down and give a formal discussion with your employees. And that is not nearly enough. I try to have one-on-ones with most of my employees, at least every other continuous performance coaching. What are you working on now? How are you achieving your goals? Where, 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 where are you going uh, to your earlier point, Brian, about setting direction? But yeah, it's, it, it should never be a surprise by the end of the year to your point, because you're doing that good communication to Nick's point. So from a performance review process, John, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what does that look like for you? Are you capturing things throughout the year or is it you get handed something from your organization where now it's that time of year, here's your form to fill out, make sure that you've got all these things. How does, how does that typically work for you? Well, I typically sit them down and just remind them that the beatings will continue until morale improves. And then uh, a, a big stick was that Teddy Roosevelt speaks softly, carry a big stick. <laughs> no, we, so as a, the government has about a pretty standard way of doing performance reviews, but there's some leeway within that we do have a formal specific forms with specific boxes you have to check and, and scores and all that. But each of my employees have a, a set of critical elements to their position and they, those elements have a weight to them. So let's say it's producing the lead podcast, that'd be 30% of your time, post-production 30%, whatever. And it, it all adds up to a hundred percent. I'm going to count you to those, those percentage <laughs> times, by the way. <laughs> you're doing well, Nick. And then you rate the one through five on each of those. So it's the, it's the the weight times the rating gets them their kind of their end of the year score. And then out of 500, where did you land? And then there's lots of those 500, were you outstanding? Were you commendable? Were you fully successful or, or below, which hopefully nobody is. And that was an interesting challenge. And I think a problem, probably in a lot of organizations, not just in the government is performance review systems are bloated because they're tough conversations. So you have an employee who's, who's they're pretty good, but they're they're in their paycheck and that's great. Um, but they're probably not one of your top performers, but they're really nice and you like them a lot and you become friends. How do you tell them you're just doing your job? And I think that's something we worked hard as a team in my office this year on starting to course direct on is that actually fully successful, which is the, the quote unquote bottom of the three, you're doing the okay ratings below that you need to be on a performance plan and there's issues. You might be on your way out the door, but fully successful is great. You go to your job, you know exactly what's asked of you. There's no questions about your performance. I don't have any concerns with you. I don't need to sit down and do formal counseling, but there's certainly a lot of room for growth and that's great. That can be a good place to be commendable. You're doing excellent work. You're going above and beyond. You're doing exactly what's required of you and more. I don't have to ask you a ton of questions about what you're doing because I know it's getting done. I don't always have follow-ups. You're not missing deadlines. In fact, you're probably early on things. You're asking the right questions. I trust you to, to lead a team, maybe depending on the level of your performance. And then we have that outstanding level, which is where a lot of people, if you ask them, probably think they are, but that means, and we have very specific criteria for how we measure these things, which are more you depth with, but the, the standouts for that are leaves almost no room for improvement. is doing things that would not have otherwise been accomplished without listening. And that's not without this position. It's not, we could ask the question to, to keep picking on Nick. If Nick wasn't here to press record, could somebody else do it? The answer is yes. Okay. So maybe it's Nick, it's a fully successful, if his job's to press record on the, on the podcast. But if Nick found some new way to automate using artificial intelligence, that when we start talking about something really important, the program automatically picked up, oh, that's important. I should record and actually go back and whatever. That's probably an outstanding thing. Some totally new thing that we haven't done before or a, a more simple task 
that hasn't been done before or figuring out this year. Okay, this year, Nick figured out that great task. That's outstanding. Now we have an SFP. We know how to do it. Keeping on doing that might keep them in the commendable or fully successful world. And those could be our conversations to have for employees who are used to getting outstandings or very high commendables is that looking at what we put in your performance plan for next year or from, from this past year and what you actually got done, you, you were commendable. You did really well. You should be proud of that. Some employees are disappointed. I really thought I was outstanding, which again is a difficult conversation to have, but I think it opens the door to, okay, let's talk about how to get you to outstanding next here are a few things I'd like to see. Here are some areas where you didn't perform maybe at a hundred percent this past year. Or to your earlier uh, comments, Brian, how do you think you get not standing next year? <laughs> you'd like to work on that might put you over that threshold. Again, a, a long answer to a kind of a short question. It's a convoluted, detailed process in the government that takes hours. Not, a, not as simple as sitting down, but it is, it does give you an opportunity to be objective um, and have some really good conversations. I like you bring up that formal like documented process because I know you spent time in the military probably has something pretty similar where it's like pretty drawn out and A and a B then a C then a D and at least in my experience in the private sector a lot of it's not like that and maybe Brian's is is a bit different but my experience in the private sector can be like this is what you're supposed to do but not every manager does it and not every manager does it the same way even if there's a standard operating procedure so I think it's cool to hear it from the other perspective to see here's your A, here's your B, here's your C, here's how you're going to get from here to there. So my question for either of you is when you're first, the first time you ever do these performance reviews, right? And maybe you were a peer of these people. How do you handle going from the peer doing these performance reviews? Like where you were at a peer level, now you're their supervisor, their manager, and you're above them. How did you handle that? Because I think, John, we were talking earlier, before we started recording, you are talking about you're working with some people now that you were peers with before, and you're responsible for doing their yearly performance reviews, which can be tough. I'm assuming the performance review comp compensation is tied to that too. So how are you handling making that transition? Sure. I think that it, the simple answer is that it starts way before the performance review. Week one or two, when I took on this position, we had a conversation with the whole team. And then I sent the follow-up email or a newsletter. These are my expectations. This is what I expect to see from you. This is the way I see things. The weeks leading up to performance review time, I was sending articles and, and I do something I call the Monday minute, which Hopefully it would take a minute to read. I usually go a little more reverse as you guys can tell through my end here, but I, I just, it's, we had Microsoft teams that we, so I can do like a wiki. So I just put like a little kind of blog thing out for my team more or less every week. So the, the months leading up to performance review time, I was, Hey, this is what fully successful looks like, blah, blah, blah. And here's the expectations. Here's the format I'd like to see. It makes me easier to see what you've accomplished. Give me numbers, give me qualitative and quantitative detail, like all those things. So I really set the stage or I did my best to set the stage leading up to formal review time that people know what's expected. I talked to my boss about, Hey, you should all be aligned on fully successful versus outstanding versus commendable. And our team did a great job with that this year. So we really, uh, I think we managed expectations. And again, it was that communication from day one on the job about setting expectations that like you know, people, letting people know what type of uh, leader and manager. I strive to be what I expect out of them. And then here's what the formal process says you need to do to get these levels of performance. That was how I'd handled it. I don't know if, if you or, or Brian have, have different experience. Yeah, I think to your question, the peer to manager transition, it's one that's potentially uh, rife with challenges. It's you have personality types 
that will already conform to John's, you know, point that he led with the, the process starts, you know, well before you're actually promoted into that role. And so typically what happens is team members have already started looking to you as someone who exhibits leadership qualities. There are things that are uh, already stand out in your own performance that indicate that you really are capable of undertaking the leadership position uh, of that team. And as we've talked about many times, there's something about leadership that creates an aura about it, right? There's like a magnetic force and uh, true leadership creates followership <laughs> at the point that you're really moving into being promoted into a role where now some of the people who are your peers are your direct reports. Hopefully there's already some of those indicators of followership that have been pretty evident on the steps along to that promotion. But there are always detractors and, and certainly there's often someone in the mix who feels like, uh, they should have been, uh, promoted into that role. So they see themselves as equal or superior to you as a leader. And so that's, that's where you've got some work to do in the relationship development to help bring that person along. And it's typically one of two things, right? You're either able to bring them into the fold or you have to edge them out, which is not a comfortable thing to do either. But again, for the, the harmony of the team, if you're not going to be able to help the entire team adapt to that degree of followership that is required of you as a leader, then that's when difficult decisions have to get made. And that's part of the process of leadership as well. So from my own experience and in trying to work with detractors, it starts with trying to find some of the common ground. Where are some of the things that you can identify that are common facets where you feel like there's some collaborative opportunity for you to work together. So part of what John was referring to, you know, previously in the asking versus telling, there's a time as a leader to tell people and set the direction, be very clear about what expectations are, but there's also great opportunities in asking. And when you uh, create an open invitation for people to participate with their own thought leadership and make their own contributions or identify areas where they see constraints or challenges and offer their own solutions, that's when you start opening the door to a more creative and collaborative process. And particularly with certain personality types that may be detractors of seeing you move into a leadership position initially, that can often be a, a great way to, to forge some commonality where they can start to feel like because they are respected, then there's a, a mutuality and the respect that's reciprocated. It's a great breakdown, Brian. <laughs> and then, so this whole time we've been talking about how leadership impacts perform employee performance. And we've been talking to it about it from a positive perspective, but how can leadership negatively affect employee performance? Obviously we're talking about bad leadership, but if we're going to talk about the good things that can happen, what are some of the bad things that can happen? I mean, I think quickly, it, it might not always be quote, quote, bad leadership that can derail a team, but in the meta sense, maybe it is, but there could be that well-intended over-involved, again, not so like micromanaging or abusive or anything like that, but just, I think kind of to Brian's points about asking questions and, and letting people pick their own path. It's, are you doing too much for your team out of a sense of, even a sense of duty to, to make sure things are done or man, I really want to develop this person, but you're not actually, you're actually end up stifling them because you're trying so hard to be a good leader. So I think when we hear the phrase bad leadership, it, we think of people, people who are, again, the beatings will continue until we're out group type 
person <laughs> who genuinely want the team to do well and they're trying their best and they, they read the leadership books, but there's, but they're still developing their own leadership paths. I think that's one of the things that can get in the way is you, you got to know when to let go a little bit and trust your team to do the work and trust yourself that the world's not going to end if this one project gets a little bit off kilter. So that was my initial thought on good versus bad leadership. But of course, a bad leader who is either has poor, bad intentions or they're stepping on people to get their own promotion. I don't even know if I would categorize that as a leader at all, really. But I think there's a, there's a quote out there that something about the line between, I'm going to mess this up, but the line between being a complete narcissist and a leader is kind of like paper thin that, or no, sociopath, excuse me, a sociopath and a leader is the difference. <laughs> it's your motivation, right? Sometimes a sociopath, a lot of them are, are very empathetic. They can get into your head and what do you really want? And then they use that to, to get to their own end and, and to you know, take advantage of people. A leader has to have a lot of those same skills and work on developing those skills, like listening and, and letting people arrive at their own conclusions. But maybe the conclusion you want need to use, uh, Brian's example, let's say that the rough draft and then I'll just coach him back over here and by the end of the year we'll be where we want. But you're doing that for the good of the group and for the good of that individual as opposed to for your end. So anyway, that's my initial thought. From <laughs> I got my ball track in the initial question, but no, I think oh. that's right. And, and when I was asking about you know how leadership affects it and bad leadership, I just like you said, it could be hopping in and doing too much for your teammates, doing their job when they have deliverables to do, and you're just doing them to make sure they get done, not giving people the chance to to excel at their own jobs. Yeah, I think put simply, if you just take any of the principles that we've identified that make a good leader and you take the inverse of what each of those are, <laughs> now you've got a pretty clear understanding of what it takes to make a bad one. So if setting direction is one of those principles, then failing to set direction, having very ad hoc interactions that are all over the map in terms of what the focus is. But that's the kind of thing that can lob a chaos grenade into a team very quickly and leave people just wondering, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I know that these are the tasks that are before me, but if I'm doing them correctly, I'm not really sure I'm not getting the proper coaching in, in any of these things. It's clear to me that my, my leader is infused with a combination of both insecurity and incompetence that those aren't good qualities <laughs> to have <laughs> with someone that you're looking to help you be successful in the role that you're trying to deliver. Yeah. I think if you just start penciling in kind of what's the inverse of all of the, those qualities that we think good leaders should aspire to, you've got a pretty comprehensive list relatively quickly of, of the bad qualities. So I actually have a question. You just, you made me think of something. Brian, so I had, I had an employee, this <coughs> wonderful employee and a good friend actually, who said to me again, when I took over his team, part of the performance review process in government quickly, you do a performance appraisal plan at the beginning of the year. And that's what they're rated against at the end of the year or throughout the year. And she said, I really don't think my performance appraisal plan, my PAP, as we call them, is, you know, accurately articulating the things that I'm doing or the things I should be focusing on. Can we leave? I said, sure. Tell me what you think it should be. Um, then I'll nudge it back where I want it to be. And then, or where I think you may be straight off course a little bit, and then we'll come together in agreement. And it turned into a really excellent, it's a cookie cutter now for the rest of the ones that I've been writing. So I think that was an exact, excellent example, Brian, of a question that you made me think of earlier, which is when you, when it comes to employee questioning and asking questions, when you know the line for an employee between asking so many questions because they're afraid to make a mistake or because they're not confident or because they want you to figure it out for them versus 
asking enough questions to show that they're engaged and that they want to learn and that they want, because those, that's a tightrope walk for me, mm -hmm. especially as employees get higher up in the organization is that, okay, you're, you know, a, a brand new junior account manager to make up a title. You're going to have a lot of questions and that's fine. You've been here for six months, but you're now a, you know, a senior account manager specialist three, whatever the heck, you know, you're, <laughs> uh, you know, and you're still asking me seven questions a day about how to do your job. Are you just trying to get me to do it for you? Or is there a confidence issue that I need to work on with you? And how might that affect their performance at the end of the year? Yeah. A trick that, that I think any leader can employ, maybe trick isn't the right word for it, but answering a question with a question, is often a, a good way to elicit some additional thinking on the part of whoever's asking the question. But that really does come from uh, a leadership tactic that I first learned from Tony Robbins, like way back in the ultimate power days. And he uses it in terms of how you change your own behavior and how you change your own perception about how you can tackle an issue. It's when you run into something that you clearly don't know how to do. And so that's the, the programming that you've already set yourself up for is, well, I don't know how to do this. And so to take it a different direction and to alter the programming so that there is a possible solution that can come out of it. Tony Robbins says, it's very simple. You just swap around the statement. But if I did know how to do that, what would I do? And so that's, I guess, the tactic really with answering a question with a, a question is to start prompting that change in thinking that sometimes you've got from one of your direct reports, particularly if they're coming back and you feel like they're asking the same question over and over. They're just, you know, couching it slightly differently because they are seeking for you to solve the issue for them. And again, I, I think another quality of leadership is you may not always be capable of solving every issue. You may need the help of others to do it. But sometimes there are things that you can solve that are actually better for you not to. And having the articulation in your own thinking to determine what those things are, I think that's part of what can really help an employee with their own performance growth. Yeah, I would agree. I think a lot of us get into leadership positions because we are fixers and solvers. And then it's tough sometimes to pull the reins back on ourselves. If someone comes to the question, well, yeah, the answer is just do this. And then you realize you do that enough time, nobody's learning below you. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be the person always having to answer the questions that you're going to never get promoted because you're too expendable. <laughs> so, yeah. And answering a question with a question doesn't have to be, you know, specific. It can be more of a, there's probably several ways to do that. Let's mm -hmm. look at what the various scenarios are and let's talk through the pros and cons of each of them. And then that, you know, starts opening the door of possibility. It's always a lot of fun being a leadership role. Also, when you see someone actually have that aha moment where it's the epiphany where they get really excited about something that they're doing, and now they're completely invested in ownership over that. And that's when you start seeing full engagement from someone that's in a team role. It, it, it's funny that you, you bring that up, John, because I was chatting with somebody on LinkedIn the other day. I don't remember who, and one of the things he commented, you know, he had done this post. He's, he's like, when I was a kid, you know, he's me and my dad sat down and he's like, between the two of us, we know everything. And he's, you think you know everything. And I know that I don't know everything. And he's, I had left some comment on the post and it was along the lines of what Brian said when he replied back, he's sometimes. I act like I don't know the answer to a question 
to give the other person an opportunity to learn or, mm-hmm. or to show their expertise. And I, I was like, man, that's a really great lesson that sometimes as a leader, you should just be quiet and let, you know, the people uh, that you hire or, or you have below you to do certain jobs, let them do their job. Give them the opportunity to find the answer before you, you string out and want to give the answer. Because like you said, John, a lot of us, we get elevated to roles because we were really good at doing a specific task or a role. And, and our initial reaction is we have the experience doing that is we just want to jump in and, and help them out. It's a need to want to help, but at the same time, our need to help is limiting their chance to learn and, and gain that experience. So I just thought it was really cool that I had literally just had this conversation yesterday and it comes up <laughs> here again today. Yeah, you just like- Think of, uh, I don't remember if I shared this on my, on one of the podcasts before, but I have this little, you know, keep on my computer that says just four words said by me. And when I got this from an article I read about emotional intelligence, is that there's three questions you can ask yourself to instantly improve your emotional intelligence, or at least the appearance of it, which is because this need to be said, doesn't need to be said by me and doesn't need to be said by me now. But I think that's kept my foot out of my mouth in a number of meetings. <laughs> always saved me. I have a foot-sized mouth, but I think it's a great, it's a great reminder too. In exactly the context you were talking about, Nick, you're talking to a, a peer or a two-year employee or anybody who's trying to figure something out. Okay. Maybe I do know the answer or, or what, what I would consider to be the answer. And does, do I need to say it? And do I need to say it now? Maybe they're just looking for their own sounding board to, to arrive at their own conclusion. Um, you can really help them grow that way or alternatively stifle their growth by, by solving too many things for them. I'll just leave things with this one quote that we've probably all been very familiar with in terms, and I don't know who said it or where it came from, but it's something to the effect of the most highly effective leaders are working themselves out of a job. Right. <laughs> yep. Facts. Truly facts. <laughs> so I guess with that, we're wrapping up. Does anybody have uh, a book that they like that goes along with the topic today that they want to share? Ooh performance review book. I don't know if I have a performance review. Somebody got me a little once and I didn't read it. So it was failing. (laughs) (laughs) Was it part of your performance review? (laughs) It was on the shelf here. I think it's a stress-free performance review, something like that. It it looks like it was. I can give one and it's not performance review based, but it's a book called Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. He's one of the co-founders of Pixar. If anyone doesn't know that, Pixar is the animation studio that Disney bought and did Toy Story and all that. But one of their things when they write stories and they storyboard is that a director comes in with a story where they have it so far and everybody on the whole staff can give them input as how they have the story. They're like, they're like, does it believable that from what you know from this character, they would do X and Y? And it's a performance review basically for the director, right? Because they're just giving him information saying feedback, and it's up to him to decide if he can take that or not. And they go through this whole iterative process of, of how they cultivate creativity and stuff like that. And I think a lot of it in that book can be applied to employee performance based is like how you can foster that creativity and that trust inside of your team. Yeah, I've got one that I don't know that I've ever mentioned on any of our previous podcasts, which is funny because it's probably one of my favorite leadership books. And I don't know why I overlook it so many times, but maybe because it's so straightforward, it's called the practice of adaptive leadership. And more from the context of leadership 
is a continuum that the performance review is always in motion, that those conversations are always happening, right? It's not just about giving praise. It's always about giving feedback. It's about giving criticism when it's necessary. It's about course correction, even when those conversations can be difficult. It's to me, that book is really about what is the mindset that's required to be a highly effective leader who is truly adaptive, right? Who can conform from being in a contributor role to a leadership role with a lot of poise and grace, because it's that adaptive mindset that allows you to take in a lot of information and assess it and be decisive about it all through just a, a very structured process. Yeah, after a, a quick scan of the bookshelf over here, I, uh, <laughs> I never remember that I'd think about, but one I'm actually, I'll mention today because I actually quoted, I quoted a quote from the book in a few performance reviews for my team is how good do you want to be by Nick Saban, the other college football coach at University of Alabama, if I'm not mistaken, not a college football fan. So anybody listening, that is <laughs> I apologize, but it's an excellent book from, from a very successful coach. He quotes Vince saying perfection is not available. It's not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. And that's, you know, for my employees who were at that high level or on that borderline commendable versus outstanding. It's, this is your goal. You we're, we're chasing perfection. I don't expect you to reach it, but if we try, we can be excellent. So I think that book has a ton of Nick Saban has incredibly high standards for his team. It's an excellent book on how do you set the standard as high as humanly possible without breaking your team and without demoralizing them and, and them picking their failures when they don't reach the mark. So really excellent book for folks that are interested in, in really pushing that performance and then reviewing later. Yeah. So I guess I'll end my question then, Nick. What are you reading right now? I am reading a book called Breathe. It came out last year and the, the author goes through how breathing helped him fix all his allergies he's had and some breathing problems, which stemmed from some of deformities he had from when he was an infant and some teeth issues. So that, that's been interesting. I've gotten big into the mindfulness lately and doing a lot of breath work. So that was interesting to read for me. I've been doing a lot of what this thing's called biofeedback breathing sessions where you put your heart rate monitor on there, check your respiratory rate, how many breaths per minute you're doing. So it, it's been an interesting read and, and kind of a way to relax. So that's where I'm at. I did that's the audio book for that. And this is a funny story on that book. I did the audio book a, a few months ago and there's breathing exercises at the end. And what I didn't realize was that I had been playing the, the audio book in like double speed. So I tried to do this. <laughs> do them really fast. Just don't seem right. Now you're Wim Hof breathing when you do it that fast, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll put disclaimer for anybody that that's interested in going, <laughs> slow it back hey, before trying. I would add that disclaimer too, is if, if you're going to get that book, it's worth picking up the audiobook because of the breathing exercises they put at the end of it. So that's a good ad and don't do it at induced time speed. <laughs> How about you, Brian? What are you reading? I just finished a book called Beyond Conspiracy Theory by Robert Anton Wilson. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty interesting because it's actually an, an interview with him that was done in 1985. And it was intended to be part of a research publication that really focused on him and his work. But it, for whatever reason, it got shelved and was in the vaults until 2019 when it finally got published. Robert Anton Wilson to me is just a fascinating character. He is, he's probably most well-known in popular culture for co having co-authored the Illuminatus trilogy with Robert Che, and then he went on to write 
the historical Illuminati chronicles, but he himself had a PhD in uh, psychology. He was an electrical engineer by training and, and then he had this, you know, phenomenal career as a writer, both of science fiction and, but also a lot of psychology books <clears throat> and beyond that, he's just a hell of a funny guy. And part of what I love all of his books and just his personality, he was always looking for baking in humor with complex ideas, which I love because I think when something is funny and it's also mentally challenging, the humor helps you retain it better. You know, there's something about it that helps bring you along with the concept. And I think that it's just so ironic that book surfaced at the time that it did, because conspiracy theory has gone from being something that's just a topic of fringe interest to something that's like a part of our daily conversation anymore, you know, with where we've come in the last few years, particularly with all of these quote unquote information sources through social media. So it's a very worthwhile read and it's especially fun because at the end of that book, there is 150, uh, question conspiracy quiz. It's, and there, there are questions on topics that you never even recognize and something to think about before. So it's a, it was a fun read. Very I'm going to myself off the hook. I am reading <laughs> a book called born to run by Chris Mc. Dougal, I believe is the deal. Uh, pretty popular book. I think it's something that I've had on my what to read list for a while, but didn't want to spend money on kind of thing. We were at, stayed at an Airbnb this past weekend, the wife and kid, and there was one of those old free library things that you find at the end of the street and yeah, they pop in there and there it was, look, oh, look, I went to buy it. And I should have bought a long time. It's a really fun to read about this tribe in Mexico that can run like a hundred miles at a clip, practically barefoot with no seeming injuries or Anything like that, uh, and it gets into ultra marathoning and all that stuff. Something that I'm not personally into, but I really kind of next point the health and, and mindfulness and all that stuff. How have we actually done some damage to our body by, for instance, like wearing running shoes as opposed to being barefoot more often? And indeed, are we are we weakening ourselves by trying to protect ourselves and all that kind of stuff? So really interesting read. Uh, similar ride, pretty funny. All three's got some moments in there that, that have you laughing. Not all the way through it, probably about halfway, but a good read so far. I can recommend it. Uh, is that about the Weechol tribe? I believe it's the, I'm going to, I'm going to totally mess up the pronunciation, the Taro Kubara, I think is Taramara okay. tribe in Mexico. I definitely mm. butchered that. I won't even try to spell it without the book in front of me, but a really interesting one. And he talks about other tribes a little bit throughout the book, but some folks that can get out there and run 150, 200 miles. Yeah. It's mind blowing. I might just, you know, try and get up and down the street. One of these things. <laughs> <laughs> I can walk it. <laughs> it. It does have an element of really, he talks about psychology of being able to do that, pushing your body beyond your limits and, or what, what you perceive to be limits and all that kind of stuff. So it's a really interesting read, uh, about what humans are capable of, which I think is an applicable topic to our leadership. It's a great ad. So I, I think, I think I've heard that author on a podcast yeah. somewhere. Maybe it was a Tim Ferriss podcast or something a few he years heard, ago. Got a couple um, of books out there. I think he read for, wrote for men's health as well for a while. So he's probably been all over the place. Yeah. Cause it, it, I think that book was on my, or that author was on my radar. Cause I used to do a lot of triathlon. So mm -hmm. like, I remember hearing that book or hearing his name somewhere along the course. So, um, should be an interesting reading. Yeah. Endurance sports are one of those things where it's mostly mental over 
over any physical thing. You just got to tell your body to shut up sometimes. As this one cyclist, Jens, would say, he's like, I just tell my legs, shut up. You do what I tell you to do. So maybe you just need a little bit of that, John, when you start running. Not, not an advisable strategy for your employees, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. I guess with that, we'll wrap up. Any closing stuff other than if you're listening to this and you enjoyed it, if you could just leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you got this on, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, give us a thumbs up, slap the like button, right? Subscribe. We'd really appreciate the support. It, not only does it help us grow the podcast, but it, it allows us to expand our reach and then bring you some more interesting guests because as the podcast gets bigger, it gives us access to uh, more notable guests and everything so that we can make a better show for you. Thanks for the plug, Nick. Well done. Hey, somebody's got to do it. It hasn't been <laughs> you, Brian. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. There's my performance no, if, review. <laughs> yeah. If you're still listening to this right now, yeah, no, I'm just joking with you, Brian. But we appreciate everybody listening, whether it's one listener or, or thousands. Uh, thank you for your time, and we will catch you on the next episode.